Rich and Ryan had actually put together an envisioned prototype. So this is actually a set of clickable screens that they had put together to illustrate the solution that, that you know, they had visualized for this space. Based on that envisioned prototype and really a, a thorough understanding, again, of the space and the, and the people involved and deep conviction that this was the solution that would, that would ultimately lift the industry, went in and captured the first four accounts that we, that we brought on board. And this was sort of like the, the genesis of our, our company together. We really started with this notion of deeply understanding the, the problem space. I'm Shahib Roshan. I'm the co-founder and CTO here at 3Flow. This is Code Story, the podcast bringing you interviews with tech visionaries who share in the critical moments of what it takes to change an industry and build and lead a team that has your back. I'm your host, Noah Labhart, and today, how Shahib Rashon brought to life a shared operating system to connect employee benefits brokers and carriers. All this and more on Code Story. Shahib Rashan is a family man. He's been married 16 years and has a 10-year-old daughter. It's his family that drives how he looks at the world, teaching his daughter how to swim and be safe in the water and learning how to do new things. For example, he got into baking, which ended up in 13 cakes on his counter table. I'm wondering where my invite was too. The pattern for him is getting deeply interested in something as there is always a system behind it. Shaheem and his co-founders had many years of experience supporting the employee benefits insurance space. On a regular basis, they observed the manual creation, editing, and lack of observability in the process, aka the lack of modern tooling to support the industry. They made the decision and committed to changing the face of employee benefits insurance. This is the creation story of 3Flow. Our space is the employee benefits insurance space. It's a really interesting industry because in a lot of ways, it's sort of the operating system for the U.S. economy and how most working adults have access to healthcare, access to a lot of the financial protections for their family. This is a large industry. The employee benefits space transacts upwards of a trillion dollars every year in, in insurance premiums across a wide range of products that that include medical insurance as well as a whole bunch of non-medical products. And this space, although it is very large and complex, also has some really interesting characteristics. One of these being that it's operated and transacted by relatively small players. There's a couple dozen thousand brokers in this space that negotiate with a couple of hundred insurance carriers. And these negotiations are how employers get really great benefits packages to be able to offer to their employees. And that's a complex job to be done that, again, these brokers in our space help to negotiate with the insurance carriers and ultimately work together to deliver a solution to those to those employer groups. All those interactions, all those premium dollars, all those really important financial commitments and so on, historically has been transacted with rather poor modern tooling. So we're talking about transactions that are primarily handled over phone calls and emails. They are documented in PDF documents and Excel spreadsheets, and they're, again, sent over the wire through email. A lot of changes are made ad hoc and end up spread across a whole bunch of assets. And as you're hearing me tell this story, you can probably imagine the side effects of those, those kinds of ways of doing business. 
And then there's also really painful processes when it comes to implementing that particular insurance policy, whether that's the carrier being able to intake that into their systems, or if it's the employer actually implementing this and rolling it out to their to their teams. These inefficiencies show up as problems during the claim process. The, the one moment where you need your insurance policy to be robust and work well and all of the process goes smoothly, there's a potential for something to be miskeyed, misentered into a system, just not what you expected. We grew up in this industry. My partners and I have been in the insurance space for more than a decade apiece of our, of our careers. So we kind of swam around in that really large industry with a lot of these inefficient workflows and all of these challenges around what people on a day-to-day basis were experiencing and working through. And so we had a really close lens on all of these challenges. We understood the people that work in these spaces, the challenges that they experience and what they're looking to accomplish. It was a problem space that we understood very deeply and we had really like firsthand empathy for, for the folks that are, that are working through it. We arrived at a moment in each of our careers where we had a great deal of this experience in the space and we had a deep understanding of the problem and we were ready to take uh, the leap into, into actually putting forward a solution and thinking about what we could do in this space. And that's when we came together in roughly about 2015 to start up Watchtower Technologies at the time that is now rebranded to 3Flow and really kind of enter this space with uh, an idea of how we could we could solve the problems in a really meaningful way. Let's dive into the MVP then. So that first product you built, how long did it take you to build and what sort of tools did you use to bring it to life? This is one of my my favorite things about my partners. And it's actually the reason that I was so attracted to the solution that we were building together. Rich and Ryan had actually put together an envisioned prototype. So this is actually a set of clickable screens that they had put together to illustrate the solution that that you know they had visualized for this space. Based on that Envision prototype and really a, a thorough understanding again of the space and the and the people involved and deep conviction that this was the solution that would that would ultimately lift the industry, went in and captured the first four accounts that we that we brought on board. And this was sort of like the the genesis of our, our company together. We really started with this notion of deeply understanding the, the problem space, thinking through a solution, and then taking that to folks that would actually utilize the solution, pay a dollar for it, and, and say that, yes, this is the right thing. We, we believe that this is the right solution. After that, we built a simple single-page application based on that Envision prototype. It was a monolithic Rails uh, React application that we deployed on a, on a Heroku instance, a very tiny dyno that would fall over every time you had more than like you know five users that would jump on it at, at, at the same time. That was the very first MVP that we took to market to actually put in front of live users and get them to you know, experience what we had pitched as far as the non-working Envision prototype and actually take something that was you know, recording data to a backend and then allowing our users to actually touch and interact with the product. So Envision prototype, and then you build an SPA. In building that SPA, really within building any sort of, of MVP, you've got to make certain decisions and trade-offs, right, around maybe cutting feature or maybe building it just like the Envision prototype or accepting technical debt. Maybe there was some debt in the SPA versus different approaches. Tell me about some of those things you had to work through and how you coped with your decisions. 
the development of the MVP, there's a huge amount of guesswork. There's a huge amount of investments that we're making essentially at risk, whether this is the right feature to implement. And if it is the right feature to implement, how quickly do we integrate it into the application and where we might make trade-offs? One of the things that we did make trade-offs on and, and decide that this was a path that we wanted to take was the decision to have a monolithic application that combined the Rails backend with this React frontend and take that as the application to move forward. So one of the, the trade-offs, like I said, associated with that decision was that any modification to a user interface element essentially meant that we were redeploying the entire application. We very quickly ended up with an application with relatively severe bloat on the front end and led to things like rather slow performance with not a whole lot of scale being applied to it. We're not talking about doubling and tripling the number of users to thousands and tens of thousands but simply bringing on the next group of tens of users. We started to observe that the application at times on specific interactions would become unusable. So that was the trade-off is we were able to see certain features that would cut aspects of the workflow down, go from five to six clicks to get a thing done to one to two clicks. But in that process, we're seeing the application acquire several lines of code to, to make that happen and put a lot of stress on the back end to be able to supply the data to then get processed into the front end. The learning from this was to understand that, well, we had essentially two really full-featured layers of our application that each needed to be optimized separately from the other. And so this is one of the earliest reasons we understood that taking the single page application, which still made sense in terms of how we delivered the software, but didn't make sense to have combined into a monolith, we essentially outgrew that model and was one of the earliest reasons that we started to separate our application into a backend API service and a series of front-end applications that drove the interactions with the user. And that allowed us the space to think about if we're improving a certain UI element or improving a certain front-end workflow and think about that problem deeply and separate those concerns from what was happening in terms of the middleware that would actually retrieve the data package in a way that the front-end applications could utilize. And so that was one of the first evolutions of our software moving past the MVP state into something that needed to be relatively resilient and, and optimized for scale into a, into a real production use. Okay, so then, so you got your MVP, you were working through some problems with the MVP, right, as far as, you know, scalability. And tell me a little more about that around progressing the product and maturing it. And I think to wrap that in a box, what I'm really looking for is like, how did you build your roadmap? How did you go about deciding, okay, now this is the next most important thing to build or to address with 3Flow? So one of the advantages that we had with 3Flow, and this is something I'm, I'm passionate about, what has been an instrumental reason for our success is that the three of us, and Rich and Ryan in particular, had such deep domain expertise. We had a relatively clear, I would say a, a very clear picture in terms of what the solution needed to deliver in the very first initial bird stages of our company. We had a product roadmap that extended well into the product market fit state and also a vision that extended past that in terms of what the company needed to do from a scale perspective to be really successful. 
We started from a perspective of really having an opinionated picture of what the product needed to be able to do in order to have the broker side of our market and our carrier side of our market really find the value to come on board. The vision for what needed to get built now, next, and partially into later was something that we had really deep intuition on. The challenge for us was to translate that vision into something that was practical and understandable by the development experts, the engineers, the designers that needed to actually interpret that vision and then develop a delivery strategy. How do we actually think about staging out these features? How do we design the interaction elements on the page? How do we then wire these things up to a data model that made sense and captured the level of information the vision requested and and actually develop a strategy for putting software out? We had this advantage of being able to focus a lot more on the implementation phase of our product roadmap than we had on the ideation phase of developing the roadmap. I hear the tension between identifying the tension and solving the tension between the expertise in the industry and then translating that into this is what we want to build. So, and there's probably, you probably encountered, which is, which is normal. You probably encountered, encountered a lot of times where you had to educate the development team. Was that true? It is a hundred percent true. And this is the cost of that deep domain expertise. Absolutely. Like you said, it's educating everyone else on the team who we intentionally did not recruit from the industry to get them up to speed on everything from how to empathize with these types of users, what are the kinds of challenges that keep those users up at night, what are the kinds of things that would really delight and improve the quality of the experience for the user, all the way down to the technical definitions of what does it mean when you have a button that says proposal or renewal and have that make sense in the context of the domain. This is, in fact, one of the few things about our product development that still persists today. And we've gotten much better at it than when we first started. But this notion of being able to educate non-domain team members, not just in engineering anymore, but in all aspects of our our teams around the customer success folks, our support folks, uh, different engineering teams that are now coming on board uh, to really understand the domain deeply and bring that context forward in the process of actually developing software, creating designs for future uh, feature investments, and thinking through how do we actually build and grow our company. One of the things that has changed in terms of how we develop our product roadmap now was this transition between this founder-led product roadmap to a, a sustainable product team-led product development, uh, roadmap development, and and execution strategy. And that has been sort of our our recent focus is to understand how does that domain education bit that I talked about, how do we create really high fidelity communication between uh, the domain experts who have now expanded past just our founding team? We have a really robust executive team that brings in a lot of that domain expertise and are able to help us share certainly with each other how we understand the domain to work, our business context and our marketplace to work, and being able to share that with their teams, certainly on the engineering side, but again, on all these other support teams as well. So we have a really clear-eyed vision for what are we looking to execute in the market and how does that show up in the software. 
let's switch to that team then and, and the process of building that team. I'm curious how you built that team. And, you know, I hear the, the process of, of repeatable, high fidelity ways to bring in the expertise to the team. But what did you look for in the people that you were hiring to indicate that they were the winning horses to join you? They had the raw materials to become those subject matter experts. One of the things that we were very intentional on, we, my, my partners and I were very intentional early in formation of our company was to default or bias heavily towards deep experience. And the way that it showed up on the engineering side was we made an intentional decision to say that our early founding engineering team would bias more towards senior engineers specialized in a particular domain. So rather than full stack engineers, very experienced front end engineer and a very expen- uh, experienced back engineer, to found the the initial core engineering team. And one of the decisions that we were basing this this move on was we understood that the initial foundational architecture of the software product needed the benefit of that experience where engineers that had previously experienced scale, everything ranging from observability of the application to uh, scalability of the team itself. So how do you think about onboarding other engineers into the process? How do we think about uh, maybe engineering for the next level of scale rather than just thinking about where the utilization is today? And bringing that experience as the first entrance into the team, we knew that that was going to be super critical. The other benefit of, of bringing in experienced early team members was the network of other experienced folks that they had worked with at previous you know, moments in their career and had that experience of knowing what good looks like and understanding how do we have a conversation with other potential team members, being able to talk about the fact that this is a crew that has both deep domain expertise, but also deep technical expertise and is able to create the environment for learning and growth for new team members and also a degree of autonomy that you've earned right, from having a great deal of experience in that space. So that informed Noah a lot of our early team development on engineering, where we went after folks with, you know, seven to eight years of experience at a minimum, deeply specialized in a particular stack, so we could take advantage of, again, all of those immediate proximate engineering decisions that we had to make around the architecture, but also had the foundation for a culture of learning and development, mentorship and growth, and that being a really significant recruiting tool that we just authentically were able to lean into. Well, okay, let's flip to scalability then. And, you know, I could cherry pick from from your answers and the other other questions, perhaps where you're going to go with this, but I'm going to ask it like I don't know any of that stuff. So did you build this to scale efficiently from day one or have you been fighting this as you grow and gain traction? One of the things that I'm the most proud of from a technical perspective is the fact that our engineering decisions that led to the architecture of our our core platform has been really robust. We've had essentially two significant refactors of our application, both of which were founded on extending the product's capability to take on new lines of uh, insurance products in the space, accommodate new types of workflows that we began to understand the product should support. And we're not instead driven by refactoring aspects of the application that we're melting down. 
the privilege of having to not deal with that kind of a scenario and instead look at significant engineering refactors as investments. It's one of the things that I'm the most proud of and, and also the most grateful for our incredibly talented and experienced engineering team that put in a lot of those investments, a lot of those great decisions at the outset. So we had, again, the privilege to be really biased more on the forward foot and thinking about what's, uh, what's to come than needing to, you know, sort of take a step back and, and have to, to, to put out fires. Now, this would be completely disingenuous if I made it, it appear that we have no tech debt. We had absolutely no challenges with scale, which is not the case. But one of the things that I've learned is how to productively think about tech debt and what level of discipline is necessary and what level of buy-in is necessary, not just with an engineering, but also with the non-technical teams to be able to create the space for periodic and, and intentional investments into tech wealth and carving out time that may otherwise be allocated to new feature development and, and product enhancements to instead go into thinking about aspects of the application that should be shored up to prepare for future scale. Those are the incredibly difficult decisions that have to happen at every sprint planning cycle, at every quarterly planning cycle to, again, earn that privilege that I was talking about, where we do get to think more forward than have to take a pause in order to, to put out some sort of a, a core structural fire. So I hear you saying that, that you're most proud of that, that aspect, you know, with your, with your scalability. So my next question is around what you're most proud of. I can skip that question or I can ask it if you've got a different answer too. Uh, you tell me. I have a different answer to that. It, it is the case I'm proud of the, the stability of the, of the application. There's a couple of pieces of tech, Noah, that we've built that I would sort of find a case in a museum, put this in there, and I would happily be the docent for, you know, 24-7 telling people about it because it's some really incredible engineering work that our team has put into. But all of that, I would say, takes a backseat to the team itself. The number one thing that, again, I'm most proud of, but simultaneously the most grateful for is the incredible team that we've pulled together here at 3Flow. My organization, I'm so proud to be able to say those words, my organization is one of the most collaborative and deeply technical crew that I've had the privilege to work with personally. It's again, one of the most gratifying things to be able to hear our team regularly shout out in Slack, in Lattice, and all of our all hands kind of shouting from the rooftops that they enjoy the experience of working with their team members across the larger engineering organization, and especially across engineering into the, the non-technical teams. This is a group of people that fundamentally respect the experience that each of them brings, brings to the table and is just genuinely ex excited about working alongside with them to tear into really difficult problems. So the thing that I'm the most proud of is to have had some hand in creating the space for these really incredible people to be excited to come into work and have a genuinely rewarding experience having spent their hours uh, uh, here at 3Flow. Let's flip the script a little bit. So tell me about a mistake you made and how you and your team responded to it. A little context here, the 3Flow engineering team really at each inflection of our growth was immediately the largest team that I had personally managed previous parts of my career, I had a much more direct IC 
component of my of my career and uh, at most had managed small teams that like I said immediately were were dwarfed by the team that uh, 3Flow was growing into and I struggled with understanding the skills that were necessary to be able to to support a team to motivate a team and especially provide the right kind of guidance at moments where we were we were taking on a large challenge or experiencing a core shift in our industry. There was a moment right in the middle of the pandemic in 2021 where we were in one of those growth moments. The team had significantly grown and we were taking on some challenges as we were thinking about a new product release and and really pushing to drive a whole bunch of initiatives across the engineering organization. One thing that I was not being very mindful on and wasn't very visible was some of the burnout that was happening within our team. And particularly one of my direct reports, one of the managers on our team, was trying to surface this and and tell me a little bit about, look, the team's having some trouble in this space. And the conversation was happening around a particular project that was falling, starting to fall a little bit behind. My mindset, Noah, was to, to solve the problem, to to rescue the project, to get the thing back on track and, and get the, the feature or the release somehow into production. What I was actually doing was just like shoveling coal into that fire. I, I was just aggressively making the problem worse because I didn't understand what was happening. I was, I was sort of reacting to the surface level conversation and what I really needed to do was to have a deeper understanding of what the team needed and what the team was experiencing. It was a tough time in the moment. The conversation I was having with my report was devolving. It was not leading to a productive outcome. The silver lining, which again, I'm, I'm more grateful for than anything else, was that my direct report and I had some core of a trust and relationship that was robust enough that we were able to kind of step back from that conversation that wasn't going well and come back to it with a more clear understanding. We were able to right-size our relationship and we were able to provide ultimately the support to the team to get us past that moment of, of burnout. But it was an important lesson for me to understand the sort of spheres where I have high competency and really strong comfort and confidence that I'm the longest lever to be able to solve those problems and a sphere of accountability that I have, but uh, not necessarily the skills or the experience to do a great job. I was able to move forward with uh, learning how to build a more robust team around myself with people that had those deep skills and experience. It was one of the things that led me to my VP of engineering, Brett Carter, who has that intuition and has that deep experience on, on, on understanding what does team health truly mean and what are the kinds of investments that are necessary to have a team that is cohesive and well-supported and able to take on the challenges that the company wants to, wants to tackle and has also the technical intuition to be able to provide the guidance and get into the weeds when necessary, but really has the skills and the intuition to kind of zoom out. So this will be fun. It is always fun to ask this question. What does the future look like for 3Flow the product? Oh boy, there's a lot of fun stuff to talk about here, Noah. On a couple of technical fronts, one of the things that we know is a necessary evolution of our platform is its ability to integrate with other platforms. So this is a very core focus of the 3Flow product strategy, is to look at ways 
that we can identify key partners in our industry that naturally connect with the workflows that 3Flow supports. It's in fact the backstory of the company name, 3Flow, is we see three key constituents in our space. The employer group who we ultimately serve, right? The nature of the employee benefits industry is to ultimately create a package of, of benefits that uh, the employer group is able to offer to its staff. And that fundamentally drives not just 3Flow, but all of the other participants in our, in our space. The other node in this triangle is the broker that supports the employer group. And the natural sort of counterpart to that is the insurance carrier that actually provides the insurance products, the services uh, that ultimately serve the group. The fact that these three constituents needs to flow data between each other and flow insights capabilities of, of sharing information with each other and ultimately optimize the workflows between these three constituents is again how we, we rebranded ourselves to be to be 3Flow. Moving beyond just the utilization of our platform, of our web-based application, to now move to our systems between these three constituents being able to share data with each other. So a key focus for 2023 will be our capability to identify the partners in our space, both on the insurance carrier and the broker side, that have systems that would benefit from a high fidelity exchange of information between 3Flow and that partner. And start to think about, once those foundations are laid in, what are the new kinds of insights and workflows and, and value that we can deliver to our partners by, by virtue of having those integrations. The sort of pair of that feature is our capability to address the more complete life cycle of a particular employer and their benefits package. So think about this as really the longitudinal view of a particular employer group and how their benefits package may evolve over time. What kinds of new products they may offer to their staff, what kinds of reasons they may pursue offering a richer set of benefits, a different mix of benefits to their teams, and thinking about that evolution over time. Combining those two aspects, that sort of longitudinal view of an employer group, combined with the ability to transact our data and, and our information uh, with partner systems, those two together are going to be a really core focus, a one core focus of our, of our product roadmap moving into the future. Okay, so let's switch to you, Sheep. Who influences the way that you work? Name a person or many persons or something you look up to and why. I think I've had sort of two altitudes uh, or maybe two spheres of people that I've been spending more time around. In one sphere, our investors uh, at Emergence Capital and uh, Equal Ventures and Excel Partners have, have just been incredible support and incredible mentors Joe Floyd at Emergence Capital, uh, Nathan Parco at, at, at Excel, and Rick Zulo at Equal Ventures. There's two things that they have in common. One is a very deep expertise in their, in their relative fields. And the other is this, this almost superhuman ability to x-ray into a problem and being able to like bring all this diverse thinking into a particular space and have this like deeper intuition and understanding of the thing. I gravitate towards deep expertise. If, if you're a, a master baker or 
you know, a master investor or someone that's uh, that's uh, a DBA with tremendous, you know, BigQuery experience or something like that, I've just found myself gravitating to conversations with people like that. Because in a, inevitably, as you sort of dig into a system, I think you just start to understand some like truth or reality about the world. And I just find that incredibly fascinating. Between Nate, Rick and Joe, I have found that their ability to x-ray into a thing and then apply their deep technical experience, their, then their relative past experiences, is just fascinating. I just want to kind of like understand that system. They've been remarkable mentors, each of them in a different capacity, but I've been able to reach out and, and talk through a problem or think through an idea. I don't spend nearly enough time with these super smart individuals, but I, I intend to. So that's in one sphere. In another sphere, I found myself really interested in reading a lot about big history. I think this was a trend maybe like five or ten years ago, and I'm just now catching up to it. But I've been reading books like Sapiens and um, and and uh, even before that, some of the Jared Diamond books. And, and one of the things that I've just, again, understood is that the world, the interesting parts around the world are just systems, right? They're, they're deeply nuanced. They have a huge amount of texture, but they kind of make sense. And there's a reason that, that things work the way that they do today. And it's not because people are, you know, making arbitrary decisions. We think a lot about our industry being maybe a little bit less legacy or behind the times, that's sort of a very surface level kind of an understanding. There's really historical, deep rooted reasons that things in the insurance industry work the way that they do. And this is true of like all of the other things. And so I've just found that line of thinking to be kind of expansive and it, and it helps to, again, create this like notion of x-ray vision where you sort of look out your window and you might see, you know, a utility truck that I'm actually seeing um, outside my window right now. And you start to kind of think about, well, where's the power station and how do we think about overhead transmission lines? And like, why is that thing out there versus like buried in the ground? It's, it's one of those things I've just found to be a fascinating exercise. And there's like 100% of the time an interesting story under those, under those observations. And so I'm working to push myself to, to read a little bit more history and to get really excited and interested about, about the stories behind them. And my hope is that there's some like, you know, virtuous circle here that will connect this interest in stories to being, you know, uncovering some interesting solution to a problem. I haven't proven that theory out, Noah, but I'm, I'm, I'm interested in the exercise, at least for the moment. So we, we talked about a mistake earlier, but a little bit different spin. If you could go back to the beginning, what would you do different? Or where would you consider taking a different approach? I think one is we, we could have pushed a little bit harder earlier, which is sort of like bananas to think about now, given how, how hard we are making progress and how quickly we have made progress in the, in the last few years. But I wonder if uh, we had a slightly risk-averse posture around certain decisions that, that maybe we could have brought forward. A lot of ways, the decisions that we make are around time machine decisions, right? Do we invest into this thing and pull forward an outcome we think otherwise would have taken 24 months? Can we do it in 12 months, right? It's, it's pulling that future forward. I guess that's one way to put it is I wonder if we could have pulled our future forward a little bit earlier if we had made decisions around how quickly we grew our team or how quickly we brought on outside investment in order to you know expand the scope of our, our, our ambition for the company. 
I don't quite have very specific things that uh, you know. Hey, this decision we would have. I I think we should have done differently. But just more changing our attitude a little bit to have confidence in our ability to uh, to have executed on on more ambitious things, and and again have brought our future forward a little bit. A related piece to that is me personally. Things that I would have done differently would have been to invest into those team development and those management skills that I sort of had an intuition wasn't necessarily the place where I was the, the most experienced or had the, the deepest ability to be able to create an influence on. To kind of have invested into those those aspects earlier. This is a very selfish perspective. It's just avoiding the pain of that. That mistake that I shared with you, where I, I realized a little bit too late and too deeply into a problem that,、uh, hey, you know, I need some help. I need some advice and mentorship on how to manage a team more effectively. I wish I would have done that faster and earlier, and save myself some headache, and 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 certainly、uh, save my team from from a little bit of stress that that I could have avoided. Okay, well, Shahib, last question. So you're getting on a plane, and you're sitting next to a young entrepreneur who's built the next big thing. They're jazzed about it. They can't wait to show it off to the world. Can't wait to show it off to you, right there on the plane. What advice do you give that person, having gone down this road a bit? You won't be surprised at this answer, Noah. You've heard me talk a lot about how valuable I have personally found a deep experience into、uh, a thing. How valuable I find that expertise, and how valuable I have observed firsthand. Having that expertise shows up in how you think about solutions and、um, things that you want to build and take into a marketplace. So what I'm trying to say is, the advice I would have for any entrepreneur that's getting started is to first just overinvest into falling in love with the problem. Just get into the deep nuances of. Who are the people involved in your space? Who are the folks that you've observed do some things very well? Maybe they're not doing all of the things, and that's why you find a space to bring in a new solution. But somebody is doing something really well. Somebody is doing something very poorly, and and all of those build up to this textured understanding of of that space. The reason I would advise someone to again overinvest and fall in love with the problem is that I've found that deep experience to just have all of this these dividends that it pays out over time. Your initial efforts are more well informed and have a higher likelihood of of, of success in the space. Your ongoing efforts have the benefit of those. Those lessons learned applied against your past intuition, and as you get further into the process, you have also this opportunity where you can sort of turn that experience benefit on its head and start to question: Hey, should we take this experience for granted? Is there something that we're just accepting as the status quo? And I think there's a moment of personal growth there that you have the opportunity to kind of break through. When you have that deep experience, you have this moment of someone coming in outside of that experience, challenging you, and you have that fork in the road where you can say, "Well, no, you don't know what you're talking about because I know this thing." Or you take a pause and you you allow yourself into that uncomfortable space of like, "Well, do I really know this thing?" Or even if I do, am I willing to accept that that's the way it ought to be? And there's something again about falling in love with the problem that I think creates that value to you right now. It helps your mid part of the journey be a little bit more effective, and I think it creates this space for this、um, this personal growth where you can sort of question that experience and see if there's an opportunity for you to to adopt a different view. 
I think that's fantastic advice. Well, Shabe, thank you for being on the show today. Thank you for telling the creation story of 3Flow. Appreciate it, Noah. Thank you for having me. And this concludes another chapter of Code Story. Code Story is hosted and produced by Noah Labhart. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or the podcasting app of your choice. And when you get a chance, leave us a review. Both things help us out tremendously. And thanks again for listening. Transform your home in one weekend with paint from Menards. Get a paint that combines durability and gorgeous color. Dutch Boys DuraClean Interior Paint and Primer in One offers Stay Clean technology, making your home stay beautiful and clean longer. And with Dutch Boys Easy Opening Smooth Pouring Container, transforming your home has never been easier. Save big money on Dutch Boy paints and head into Menards to get your paint project started today. Save big-